We are uh, looking at a series based on the life of Abraham and uh, especially focusing on the relationship that he had with God, a very close and personal friendship that, that he developed. And there's so much we can learn about how to enrich our relationship with God through that. And it's interesting that we're going to be talking a lot about the lies that we believe and the fears that we have to deal with as well. Because Abraham faced three enormously great challenges of faith. And at each point, fear was an issue that he had to deal with and try to overcome. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house, to know that we can come before you, that we can worship you, that you accept us. In fact, you, you long to hear our worship and that we can pray to you, that we can bring our needs to you, the needs of our children. And we know that you are working in each of their lives. Sometimes we can't see any change and Satan lies to us and says that they will never change, but that's not true. Because the Bible says if you began a good work, you will continue it until it's complete. You have no unfinished projects. And so we thank you for the fact that your work continues. And we see that from Abraham to our day. You have been continuing this great, great opportunity that we have for our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Three of the world's great religions trace their origin back to a divine intervention that took place in Mesopotamia 4,000 years ago when the God of glory appeared to a man named Abraham. And the Lord said, leave your country and go to the land I will show you. Now God's intention was not merely to create a new religion 2.0. He was after something far more important. God was interested in a relationship. That's why James chapter 2 verse 23 says, Abraham was called a friend of God. And it all began when Abraham believed God's challenge, God's call. He took God seriously and he willingly gave up his metropolitan lifestyle with all of his status and his salary and his security and his perks and his pensions and all of his opportunities. And in the words of Lukak, he marched right off the map. After an extensive delay, he finally arrived in Canaan. And there he was, a nobody in the middle of nowhere. It's not easy starting over again. Edie and I found that out when we moved back to Calgary about four years ago. Some of you have lived in this city all of your lives. Can you imagine uprooting and moving to northern Saskatchewan where there's no Costco and no Tim Hortons and no German bakery? How would you ever adjust? Well, with all of his visible means of support eliminated, Abraham was now forced to live by faith. That was not necessary in the Chaldean Empire. In Mesopotamia, life was predictable. You had control over your circumstances. You could make long-range plans. 
You didn't need faith in a place like that. We live in a society that also doesn't give us many opportunities to exercise faith. Our culture gives us everything possible to reduce the risk. We have extended warranties and unconditional guarantees and security cameras, motion sensor alarms, immunizations, flu shots, 24-7 roadside assistance. Operators are standing by. Please make yourself comfortable. How often have I been forced to live by faith without any other means of support? Hebrews 11.8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. That was the first great challenge of faith that Abraham had. And he responded and went. Talk about being outside your comfort zone. In Canaan, it all depended on God. Abraham had no other options. There was no plan B. And this was now the place where the most ambitious project in the history of the human race would commence. The restoring of paradise lost. The beginning of salvation. Opening the floodgates of heaven. And eternal life. And so this morning we have two episodes. Part one is called The Rock Star. In verse 6 it says, Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And the Canaanites were then in the land. Canaan had the distinction of being infested by the most barbaric tribes imaginable. They'd make Al-Qaeda look like a UN peacekeeping force. The great tree of Morah would, would have been one of the places where the Canaanites conducted their idol worship. These rituals were filled with sexual perversion and savage passions. Why, they would even sacrifice their own children. It was downright demonic. So it says he built an altar there. Or no, it says the Canaanites were then in the land. And Abraham might have thought, what are they doing here? I thought it was just you and me, God. But the life of faith is not lived in splendid isolation. God does not quarantine us from the dangers and decadence of a fallen world. We have the opportunity to exercise faith, defiant faith, against a background of irreverent music, seductive images, in the midst of blaspheming co-workers, gossipy neighbors, and school bullies. Abraham had taken a huge risk moving his family into such a dangerous neighborhood. And maybe he felt hopelessly outnumbered. What impact could they possibly have in a land of entrenched evil? How could he be a blessing there? Verse 7 says, But the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared who had appeared to him. Abraham had taken a tremendous risk, but he was not alone. His friend was with him. And it was here that God gave Abraham a promise and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. 
Although it looked like the Canaanites controlled this land, they had lost their damage deposit, they were about to be evicted, these pastures would eventually be given to the children of a wandering shepherd. Huh, are you kidding? What children? Abraham didn't even have a son. All he had was a promise. So whatever happened to that promise? Well, 4,000 years later, the fulfillment of that promise is on display for everyone to see. There are how many tourists going to the Holy Land every year who can witness the fulfillment of the promise God gave to Abraham 4,000 years ago. The nation of Israel is the homeland of the children of Abraham. This is compelling evidence of God's sovereignty. And maybe this is a preview of another promise, that the meek shall inherit the earth. But the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. How is that possible? Lord, how, how do you explain that? What proof do I have? Well, one thing we've learned is that the life of faith does not require explanations. We want to know how and when and where and what and why. But God does not give us explanations. And often he doesn't give us proof. Instead, he gives us promises. Because proof does not require faith. God's promises make faith necessary. So by faith, we aim our lives in the direction of God's promises, even if we don't have any proof. Psalm 145, verse 13 says, The Lord is faithful to all his promises. Psalm 119, 103, How sweet are your promises to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 140, your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And the clincher is 2 Corinthians 1.20 where it says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Proof is not necessary. We only need God's promises. And that means we have to live by faith. But the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. At the very place where the Canaanites were conducting their idol worship, Abraham piled up a bunch of rocks and he built an altar. And this altar was a testimony of his faith in God's promise. It was like staking a claim. Canaan was already being placed under new management. That altar was a visible reminder of a childless shepherd's faith in an invisible God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is being sure 
of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith deals in invisible commodities, invisible realities. And we live by faith. And although we don't pile up a bunch of rocks, we still make our faith visible. Our faith in an, in, in an invisible God is made visible through the lives that we live. Whenever we forgive someone who doesn't deserve it, that's a testimony to our faith in an invisible God. Whenever we return blessing for insult, when we help someone who's hurt us, when we overcome evil with good, it's like an altar where we have sacrificed our rights, not because of our religion, but because of our relationship with God. Verse 8 says, From there he went on toward the hills east of... There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. So there was these piles of rocks that were appearing all over the land of Canaan. And it's interesting that six centuries later, this is the exact same route that Joshua followed when he evicted the Canaanites and claimed the land for Abraham's descendants. Six centuries later, they finally had proof. That's when this promise was fulfilled. It didn't happen in Abraham's lifetime, or Isaac's, or Jacob's, or Joseph's, or Moses. They all had to live by faith. They had to live without proof. Hebrews 11, verse 13 says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And that's exactly what our life here on earth is all about. This is us. Like them, we know the world is not enough. We know there's got to be more than this. So we're holding out for a better offer. We know God has something better prepared for us, so we aim our lives in the direction of God's promises. Wherever we have no proof, we have to live by faith. Abraham's faith in an invisible God was made visible by the altars that he built they testified to the fact that God was up to something. God was up to something good in a very bad place. And then Abraham set out and continued toward the Negev. And of course, Abraham lived happily ever after. Not exactly. Because not long after his arrival, something went terribly wrong. Which brings us to part two, staying alive. Verse 10 of Genesis 12. Now there was a famine in the land. What in the world? I don't get it. God, you brought me from a prosperous city with all the amenities to the outer limits of the most primitive, most uncivilized place on the planet, You put us in the midst of people who seem like the remnant of a Neanderthal apocalypse. 
I took the risk. I believed you. I came all this way by faith. And a famine breaks out? A famine? Are you serious? When is the blessing going to begin? Now there was a famine in the land. We're all going to die. Has this ever happened to you? You know, you take a significant step of faith and break your leg. You set out on a new beginning following God and it's like you've wandered into an obstacle course or worse, a minefield. See, when God calls us to follow him, he doesn't give us a VIP escort. The traffic lights don't all turn green ahead of us. It's more likely that you could get a flat tire or run out of gas. I've noticed that whenever I've taken a risk and trusted God for some new venture, I've almost always regretted it soon afterwards. Because in the early stages, it's going to seem like a big mistake. Oh, what was I thinking? Of course, this is only a temporary glitch. Philippians 1.6, we are confident that one, the one who began the good work will carry it on to completion. But along the way, we sometimes wonder if we've made a huge mistake. A famine? I don't believe it. So guess what Abraham did? Well, I want to say he continued to trust God to provide for his family in the midst of this drought. But that's not exactly what happened. And Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. At the first sign of trouble, Abraham did the logical thing and led his caravan towards the nearest solution, Egypt. And that was not an act of faith. Can you imagine the Canaanites at the coffee shop? What happened to that guy who kept piling up those rocks everywhere? Huh, he lost his nerve and ran for his life. We won't see him again. But Abraham had no choice. The vineyards were looking like rows of barbed wire. Soon there would be the carcasses of cattle on a thousand hills. It's all about staying alive. Abram had to save his life, otherwise God's promise couldn't be fulfilled. I guess sometimes you just have to help God get out of a hopeless situation. Hold on, God, I, I got this. I know exactly what to do. It's not over yet. I think I can fix this. It's amazing. God finally gets Abraham to Canaan, and the first thing he does is panic and run for his life. That was not an act of faith. That was fear. And it backfired. We were talking earlier in the service about fear and about lies. I find that lies come actually from three sources. There's obviously the lies that Satan tells us, and I find most of those come into my mind. Has God really said... Satan wants us to question. But there's a far more dangerous lie, and it comes from my heart. And that's the fear 
That's where fear originates in extremely strong measure sometimes. It comes from within. It's me. It's my heart. This was not an act of faith. This was fear, and it backfired. It actually put his life in even greater jeopardy. Verse 11 says, As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Isn't that nice? What a, what a husband, huh? The greatest husband ever. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but let, will let you live. Wow. Now, by our calculation, this doesn't make a lot of sense because Sarah was advanced in years. She was like 60-something. She was not exactly a contestant for The Bachelor. However, what we do know is that the lifespans in the early chapters of Genesis were much longer than today. And that's because Adam and Eve were actually created to live forever. When they sinned, the punishment was death. But it wasn't immediate death, it was gradual death. In fact, they lived 900-some years before they died. And that does not mean they spent 800 of those years in an extended care facility. People in those days remained in the prime of life longer. But gradually, those lifespans continued to decline. Abraham's father, Terah, only lived 205 years. So by that calculation, even if she wasn't hot, she was at least lukewarm. <laughs> Maybe not a 10, but a 7.4, because 65 is the new 35. Stuart Briscoe writes, she was using that special cosmetic, oil of delay. <laughs> Verse 13, here it comes, now watch this. Okay, they're going to kill me to get you. So verse 13, say you are my sister. Now, that's half true because she was his half-sister. So this is a half-truth. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Wow. When we stop living by faith and start living by fear we are capable of doing the most despicable things. Fear has turned our hero into a coward. This is not accidental. This is premeditated cowardice. Abraham is using his wife to protect himself. He actually gives her to the Pharaoh, abandoning her to adultery, hoping that it will spare his life. He's not the best husband ever. He's the worst husband ever. But that's what fear does to us. We, when we live by fear, we will make the worst decisions and the biggest mistakes of our lives and selfishly put others at risk. Poor Sarah. But verse 17 says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Now he's become a curse. The Pharaoh's household is inflicted with serious diseases. 
And this whole thing wasn't even necessary. Verse 18, so Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? So Pharaoh killed Abraham. No. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Isn't that interesting? Abraham's fears had lied to him. Fake news. His life wasn't in danger. Everything Satan tells us is a lie. He is a liar and the father of lies. The same is true of my fears. I mean, there's legitimate fears. But these unspiritual anxieties that we have, this panic that we feel, they always lie to us. In the beginning of this chapter, the focus was on God's promise, when God said, I will, I will. That phrase is repeated five times. But when the famine started, Abraham panicked, and then it's, I will change to they will. They will say, they will kill me. Abraham is no longer counting on the faithfulness of God. I will. He's now consumed by the fear of men. They will. Wow, imagine the headlines in the National Enquirer. What a scandal. That's why God gave up on Abraham and went looking for someone else. You're fired. Maybe Lot was a better option. Well, the amazing thing about the Bible is that in Romans 5.20 it says, where sins were multiplied, God's grace immeasurably exceeded them all. And here's a perfect example. In spite of this disastrous failure, God didn't give up on Abraham. He intervened on Sarah's behalf in verse 17, and then he used a pagan ruler to rebuke his backslidden friend and send him back to where he once belonged. In the life of faith, failure is never final or terminal. In fact, the most important decisions that you will ever make are the ones you make right after you failed. Well, I guess it was a learning experience. I'd like to say that Abraham will never do this again. But in chapter 20, it happened again with the same result. I mean, this Abraham has some real problems. But that did not prevent God from keeping his promises. God didn't give up on his friend. And maybe that's why they call this amazing grace. Our relationship with God is not determined by what we deserve. It's based on God's promises. That's why we have hope. 
Now, of course, when we make mistakes, when we fail, there are consequences. And we'll see next week the long-term consequences of Abraham's fear. But God didn't give up. Chapter 13 says, So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. And guess what? Surprise, surprise! When Abraham returned to Canaan, he didn't find it a barren wasteland on the verge of extinction, where the only sign of life were the vultures circling overhead looking for their last victim. Abraham was afraid that God wouldn't provide for him in a severe famine. Well, it turned out that even the locals, the godless locals, had survived. Sure, they, they were a little thinner, their flocks and herds were a little smaller, but they'd survived. So Abraham's fears had lied to him about the intentions of the Pharaoh and also lied to him about the dangers of the famine. It was all a false alarm. The evacuation was unnecessary. Living by fear and anxiety is a huge waste of time. The sooner we switch back to faith, the better. Well, Abraham had not only hit bottom, he broke through the floorboards into the basement. But that was not his forwarding address. Because God does not treat us as we deserve. He treats us according to his promise. And that's why we have hope. Alexander White writes, The victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. If you failed, if you have disobeyed, the next act of your life can be a new beginning. Because it doesn't matter how badly we failed. All that matters is that God has called you to be part of his promise and his fulfillment. That's why Micah chapter 7, verse 8 says, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And Proverbs 14.26 says, Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. And, but the wicked are brought down by calamity. If you've fallen, if you've failed, there's something called amazing grace. There's something called abundant grace exceeds even multiplied sin. And that's what you have available to you. That's what's going to put you back into the very heart of God's promises. God treats us not the way we deserve, but on the basis of his promise. And that is why we have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that it doesn't depend on us because if it did, none of us would make it. We always have 
weaknesses. We have places where we're, we're vulnerable. And sometimes we believe the lies that Satan tells us or we believe the lies our heart tells us in fear. And yet we know that you restore all of that. Though we fall, we will rise again in your strength through the power of the Holy Spirit. And whatever we've come into this building with, whatever struggle we have, whatever burden we have, we, we leave it here. We trust you with it. And we leave with your yoke, which is easy, and your burden, which is light. We leave set free from all the things that have encumbered us because we've believed the lie, because we've acted in fear, because we failed. Lord, if you were just a God who looked on his subjects with high expectations, with low tolerance for failure, we would be lost. But you are also our friend. And friends don't give up on each other, especially when they fail. Thank you that you're that kind of a friend to us. And we rejoice in your goodness through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for the closing song.